all right, everyone, here's what I need you to do. Go home, check your calendars. If you already have plans for the weekend of August 12th, cancel them (laughs) and register for church camp. I'm pretty excited about this weekend, as you can tell. This is the only event that uh, we offer that comes with a money-back guarantee. Uh, So if you sign up for church camp and you don't return completely refreshed, I guarantee you that Pastor David, who, who, by the way, is uh, on a family vacation this weekend, he will personally reimburse you the cost of your registration. (laughs) Isn't that nice of Pastor David? If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name's Andrew Wald. I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your first time worshiping with us, I want to extend to you a special welcome. Uh, Come September, we will resume our study of Luke's gospel that we began in the spring. But during the summer months, we've begun a short series we're calling Questions. We hope to answer some of the questions that might enter your mind from time to time. Uh, Questions maybe about moral issues or theological issues or cultural issues. And and because our desire is that this series will be both relevant and practical, this morning we'll wade into a conversation that is taking place in the culture all around us. And that conversation has to do with gender. This really isn't a a conversation that anyone can avoid right now. Uh, Just about uh, every day, if you look to the, the major newspapers, you'll find an article that touches on this subject. And just to give us a sense for the, the velocity, the speed at which this topic has entered our public consciousness, if you think back 10 years ago, there was no real public discourse on gender, whether it was static or plastic and what it means to be a man or a woman. It wasn't being debated on Twitter or in Supreme Court confirmation hearings or in op-ed pieces, or in the NCAA swimming pools. In fact, uh, the first pediatric gender care clinic opened just 15 years ago. And uh, today there are over 80 of those. A decade ago, if you were to ask someone what their preferred pronouns were, they most likely would have been confused by the nature of that question. And even just a few years ago, major department stores like Target weren't selling clothes designed specifically for people who want to appear the opposite sex from which they were born. Uh, It's hard to pinpoint the exact moment that this became uh, front and center in our public consciousness, Uh, but I think if there was a breakthrough moment when the conversation became mainstream and landed on our radar, I think most would point to the June 2015 cover of Vanity Fair, which featured the former Olympic gold medal decathlete, uh, Bruce Jenner, looking quite feminine and posing in a white bodysuit with the caption, you all remember it, call me Caitlin. And, and so much has transpired over the past seven years that is really challenging the way that our society thinks about gender. And the discussion is having a massive impact on our culture, especially in the arenas I think of education, of healthcare, of um, politics, of sports. But this isn't just a cultural issue. It's also a personal one. It it affects real people who might be our classmates or our friends or our brothers and sisters or sons and daughters and maybe even personal for some people sitting right here this morning. And so I thought it might be helpful to give thought 
to how God would speak to this issue, this subject. And in order to do that, we, we first need to understand the debate that's taking place. In the past, and still in many traditional cultures today, one's gender is determined by the objective fact of their biological sex. So men and women are born with certain uh, genetic makeup. Men have uh, XY chromosomes. Women are born with two X chromosomes. And there are usually primary and secondary physical characteristics that correspond to these chromosomal distinctions. So you can think of reproductive organs or voice pitch, uh, body hair, uh, the size of one's Adam's apple, body shape. And now that's um, the traditional way of thinking about gender. And in contrast, the argument that has been put forward in recent years uh, by those who would champion the T and LGBTQ is that the objective fact of one's biology should not determine one's gender. It, it's a subjective perception that matters. The argument would be that there's something deep inside each one of us not connected to our bodies that informs whether we are male or female more than our bodies do. So this has led one advocate to contend that when people have gender reveal parties, they should really be called genital reveal parties because that's really all that's being revealed. One's reproductive organs uh, don't have any bearing on their gender. In the words of one transgender man, Chaz Bono, gender is about what's between your ears, not between your legs. So, so said another way, uh, our, our gender isn't about our biology so much as it about our psychology. And this would mean that um, if a son or a grandson or maybe a nephew who looked very much like a boy and had all the, the corresponding physical characteristics associated with the male sex, um, if that person came up to you and asked, am I really a boy? It, it wouldn't be possible uh, to give him an answer. That would be a question that only he could answer for himself because one's gender is determined by what someone feels deep down. Uh, this is referred to as one's gender identity. We could say it's one's internal self-perception of whether they are male or female, or some combination of the two, or maybe neither one. Because if our biology uh, doesn't define whether we are a man or a woman, that also means that there aren't simply two options, namely male or female. Instead, the argument would go that gender should be seen as a, as a spectrum or a continuum and not a binary concept. So it's possible to identify as having no gender or to have fluctuation in your gender or um, to have your gender evolve or overlap. And this gives rise to terms like being gender fluid or non-binary or gender expansive or androgynous. And depending on which website you visit, you can find upwards of 100 gender identities and this also accounts for the rise uh, that we would see of new vocabulary and evolving expressions in our culture, terms like pregnant people or chest feeding or you know, those with uteruses or those with prostates. Because if you follow the argument being made here that, that gender is distinct from biology, that would mean that not all men have prostates and not everyone who has a, a, a prostate is a man. Now, in understanding this, it 
It, um, it might be helpful to also mention that one's gender identity and sexuality are not the same thing. So they would say that these completely distinct from one another. I've heard it said that sexual in orientation is about who you want to go to bed with, whereas our gender identity is about who you want to go to bed as. It's how you feel about yourself, while your sexuality is how you feel about others. Now, if, if one's gender identity doesn't align with their biological sex, this creates gender dysphoria. Uh, so gender dysphoria is what occurs when there's incongruity, or we could just say maybe a perceived mismatch between what one feels about themselves to be deep down and their biological sex. So those with gender dysphoria experience the feeling that their biological body is lying to them. And the incongruity between one's gender identity and their biological sex causes real distress, anxiety, and, and sadly even thoughts of suicide or suicide itself. Now, some people who experience gender dysphoria may choose to live in alignment with their biological sex. On the other hand, there are those who take steps to live in accordance with their perceived gender identity when it's at odds with their biological sex, and the umbrella term for this is, is transgender or trans, and this might mean dressing like the opposite sex or taking puberty blockers or hormone replacement therapy or a name change or new pronouns, or maybe even gender reassignment surgery. So that's, that's a, a brief overview of the conversation, the, the debate that's happening, and the key vocabulary involved. And now the question is, um, how should those of us who seeks to be followers of Jesus, how should we think about these really sensitive issues? Well, firstly, I'd say that Scripture provides an explanation for gender dysphoria. In Romans 8, we're given a little insight into the world in which we live. This is what we, we find in verses 20 to 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, I realize there's a lot packed into that sentence. The Apostle Paul wasn't known for short, simple sentences. But, but here, here's what's being revealed in this passage, that, that our physical world isn't quite right. It has been subjected to what does it say? Futility. Or if you look it up in the NIV, to frustration. When, when God's rule was cast off in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, all of creation was affected. And what's true of all creation is also true of our bodies. We have been made uh, subjected to frustration as well. So we know not only are there are floods and tornadoes and earthquakes, we also see corruption in our own bodies. And I think the older we get, the more we realize this, right? Uh, but, I, but I suspect that all of us in this room could share the name of a, maybe a friend or a relative who is battling cancer or heart disease or depression. What this passage is teaching us is that none of us have an entirely straightforward relationship with our bodies. You know what's interesting is right after Adam and Eve made the choice to reject God's authority, 
This is what we read in Genesis 3, verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. One of the first results of the fall is that people felt ashamed and awkward about their bodies. And today, we still experience issues with our bodies. People deal not only with with health issues like chronic back pain, but also things like body image struggles. And, And all of these painful realities testify to the brokenness of creation. Scripture teaches us that the effect of the fall is not only all around us, that it's also within us. So Genesis 3 would teach us that on account of sin entering the world, it's not just our relationship with God that was made out of sync or disconnected, and it's not just our relationship with other people and our relationship with nature, it's also our relationship with ourselves that was affected by the fall. That means that those of us who are Christians, we shouldn't be surprised, but we should recognize that people can have experiences where their heart's desire is telling them one thing about themselves while their body is saying something else. And, and just because it might not be your experience, it doesn't mean that we dismiss this or we belittle this, because we know to feel this way is to experience real and deep pain. We also know that the Bible nowhere characterizes our struggles with our bodies as sinful in themselves. So whether it's a physical ailment like a hemorrhoid or depression or gender dysphoria, the Bible says that these experiences occur because creation has fallen. We we no longer experience perfect shalom or wholeness, not just in the world, but also in ourselves as well. Now, now many in our culture today would say that the way to respond to this perceived misalignment is to live in accordance with your gender identity. They'd say you can't truly flourish as you unless you embrace your inner identity. So if you feel the impulse to live out an identity that's at odds with your biological sex, then you need to be true to your inner self and you need to act on that impulse. You need to be authentically you. When our biology is at odds with our psychology, it's the body that should give way to the mind. And on account of advances in in medicine, we are the first generation that's able to modify the objective facts of biology so that they conform to subjective feelings uh, rather than the other way around. There are hormone treatments and medical procedures that can allow people to have their anatomy reshaped so that they can identify as a gender that's different from their biological sex. Uh, This is often referred to as gender-affirming care. So the argument being made is that if there is a perceived mismatch between your body and your innate sense of who you are, the way to a more fulfilling life is to live out what you feel on the inside. Just express what feels right to you. Uh, This response to dysphoria, however, runs contrary to the counsel we find in God's Word. What we see in Scripture is uh, that we are cautioned not to trust all our feelings or all the passions that reside within us simply because we feel them. So we read in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 1 tells us that on account of the fall, 
It says that we became futile in our thinking and that our hearts are darkened. Uh, What these passages are telling us is that all of us have fallen desires, and our hearts, far from being an infallible guide, can actually lead us astray, and our minds can actually work in tandem with our hearts. Acting on our impulses doesn't always lead to the best outcome. And I think we would recognize this to be true experientially. As an example, I think of someone that I was really close with who was battling anorexia. And this person was below normal weight to the point that there were health risks. And those of you you, who have struggled with this disorder or you know someone who has, you know it's characterized by a distorted body image in this this um, uh, fear uh, of being overweight. And so even though this person was, was dangerously thin uh, to the point of health risks, when I asked her, you know, why she felt like she still needed to diet and control food portions and lose weight, um, she was able to point to several areas on her body where she felt like she was overweight and there was too much fat. Now, were these genuine feelings? Yes, they were. But, but I think we would all agree that it wouldn't have been in this person's best interest to have those, uh, just, just to have physical realities conform to this person's subjective feelings. When, when seriously underweight, anorexic people perceive themselves to be obese, the wise course of action isn't to fire up the liposuction machine. And w- what this tells us is that what feels right isn't always what's best for us. Uh, Perhaps as evidence of this in in a recent article I read by the former head of psychiatry at John Hopkins University, he pointed out that studies show that those who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not statistically report higher levels of happiness after the surgery. So Scripture cautions us that our feelings can't be the final source of authority in our lives and that we experience our best life not but by submitting to our feelings, but by submitting to Jesus. And when our desires and our feelings don't line up with following Jesus, we need to trust Him. So Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When He says deny himself, that means that sometimes in order to follow Jesus, we're going to have to deny certain feelings and certain desires and passions that we might have. But it comes with a promise. Jesus says, for whoever will, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a promise there that when we deny some of those feelings that run contrary to trusting him, that we're going to, he will save our lives. But some might wonder, who's to say that the feelings that uh, they might have about their gender are any different from the hunger pains we feel? Uh, when, we, when we feel hungry, we satisfy that by finding something to eat, and that's not wrong. So what would make one think that God would say that my longing to express a gender different from my biological sex is wrong? Well, that's a great question. And, and, and I feel it gets to the heart of identity. You see, the the logic that undergirds the transgender movement is predicated upon an understanding that it's up to every single person to forge their own identity. 
As we've discussed, this ideology is rooted in a belief that says the key to understanding who we are is looking deep within ourselves. We observe our longings and our passions, and then we determine our own identity. As an example, one uh, trans advocacy website I looked at uh, in preparation for this, I was just reading some different websites like trans equality, but this one said this, you can have whatever gender identity you feel comfortable with, and only you can decide what that is. Now, don't miss the presupposition behind this claim. If you can have whatever gender identity you feel comfortable with, and only you can decide what that is, that means that your identity is something that you declare for yourself. In other words, we are autonomous individuals who create ourselves, and every human being who enters the world is a blank canvas awaiting self-creation. And in this line of thinking doesn't square with Scripture because God tells us that our identity is not something that we assign ourselves, but something that He assigns to us. The Bible teaches that the best way to be authentically you is not to look within, but to look to Him. And the way we begin to understand who we are is by recognizing who He has declared us to be. And you see that the beginning of Scripture makes two things very clear. One, that God is the creator, and two, that we are created beings, or we're His creatures. And because we're creatures, we don't have um, the, the access to the information. We're not qualified to determine our own identity. We, we don't have adequate knowledge to determine who we really are simply by looking deep within ourselves. We need to listen to someone who knows us far better than we know ourselves, someone who knows us intimately and exhaustively, and that person is our Creator. We can't discover who we are apart from Him. So what does God say about us? Well, in Genesis 1.27, we read this. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So first and foremost, we see that God declares that we as human beings are created in His image. And and part of being made in His image means that we have the capacity to, one, we could say to relate to Him. We have the capacity to represent Him or to reflect His likeness. And three, we we have the capacity to, to rule on His behalf. We are distinct from the rest of creation in this regard. But this verse also highlights another distinction. It says that He made us either male or female. And and Jesus affirmed this as well. um, When He was talking to the Pharisees, he, He quoted from this verse, and He said, "'Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female?' So dividing the human race into two genders isn't a socially constructed reality. This was essential to God's plan from the very beginning. God's blueprint for humanity included making us in male and female forms. And and there's more that could be said about the purpose behind this, but to suffice it to say part of what it means to be human is inextricably connected to our physicality. Our bodies matter to God. 
He made us individuals who are soul and body. And we can't separate the two. We are a body-soul combination made by our Creator this way for His glory. As men and women, we are more than our anatomy, but we are not less. And the best way to live is according to God's blueprint, since He knows us best. We, we don't try to re-engineer what He has intentionally designed for a specific purpose. Living according to His design is how we will fulfill our highest calling and gain the most fulfillment in life. And to strive to become the opposite of how He made us can never result in our greatest good. So God cares whether He made us male or female. And now, as uh, just a a way of closing, I want to offer a a few thoughts on how we might respond to those in the trans community or those with gender dysphoria. First, uh, because we recognize that every human is created in God's image, we know that gives every person inherent dignity and worth. For those of us who are Christians, we have the greatest motivation to treat everyone with kindness and compassion and love, regardless of skin color or ethnicity or socioeconomic status or political ideology or sexual orientation or gender identity. And when people experience pain, we as Christians should respond with compassion. Our job isn't to win a culture war. Our job is to tell people about Jesus and to show His love. Now, we know that loving people doesn't mean agreeing with all their decisions. Uh, Questioning whether it's the right decision for someone to live opposite their biological sex can be seen as being hateful in our culture today. There's pressure to affirm, and if one doesn't affirm, we can be seen as intolerant or bigoted or, or even being harmful. But loving someone also means sharing with them what you know to be in their best interest. If we read John chapter 1, we see twice it says that when Jesus came, He was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. I agree with the, the observation Rebecca McLaughlin makes. I can't say it better, any, any better than this, so we're just going to read her words. Telling a friend that you love them as they are and that you think the body they were born with is good, isn't hateful. Sometimes we need encouragement from our friends to accept ourselves. It can be easy to think that making a change to our bodies is the key to happiness, whether it's getting thinner or stronger or taller or having larger breasts or changing whether we are seen as a boy or as a girl. But just as it's not hateful to tell a friend you love her at just the weight she is, I can go to my man, okay. It's not hateful to tell a friend you love her as a girl or that you love him as a boy, even if our friends don't fit the stereotypes about boys and girls that say girls should be like this and boys should be like that. I think the point there at the very end is uh, that we, we as Christians, we don't need to reinforce narrow gender stereotypes. Uh, we know that there's nothing biblical that says that, you know, if you're a man, you have to like bacon and sports. And if you're a woman, you have to like decorating and Pinterest and Hallmark movies. <laughs> the, those, 
That, that, that is not a biblical idea. That's, that's something cultural. So we don't, need, we don't need to say this is the mold you have to fit in order to be a man or a woman. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Now, on the contrary, there are those who say that, um, you know, if you, if, you, if, you, if you try and speak the truth and love this way, that you're, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're adding distress, you're um, creating additional anxiety, you're compounding pain. And we would say that no, um, we want to point people to where real peace and contentment can be found. And the way um, that we point people to where real hope is found is in the truth we see revealed in Scripture. Our culture encourages us to think that any problem we have with our bodies can be solved by our bodies. But do you think getting the right body will fix everything? And the answer we know to that is no. We can't look to our bodies for fulfillment. The way to feel wholeness and freedom isn't to change your body. But there is a body that can bring freedom. It's just not our own. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. What this passage is teaching us, what we see in the Bible, is that the reconciliation of everything that was marred by sin's entry into the world, the reconciliation of all of that that was knocked out of sync, is made possible because of the brokenness of Christ's body. Uh, Pastor Sam Albury has observed that there's no greater dysphoria than when he who knew no sin became sin for us, than the one who was perfectly righteous when he suffered for the unrighteous by bearing our sin. And when Jesus did that for us, he opened up the possibility, the prospect, that our bodies might be redeemed and restored and made whole. You know the passage we read earlier in Romans 8 that talked about how all creation was subjected to futility? This is what comes next in verses 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our what? Help me out bodies. Jesus experienced pain in his body so that we could have the hope that one day we could experience the redemption of our broken bodies. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that our bodies are perishable, but they will one day be imperishable. It says that, that, that our bodies that are mortal will be one day made immortal. That which is corruptible will one day be made incorruptible. That's the hope that we have, that everything that was knocked out of sync by sin, when we become Christians, it's not just our relationship with God that gets restored, or as we see in Ephesians 2, our relationship with other people, that dividing wall of hostility that gets restored. We also know that our relationship with ourselves will be made whole, and our bodies will be glorified. They'll be restored. They'll be redeemed. And if that's a hope you don't have, because you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now.
Will you pray with me? Lord, I invite you to speak right now by the power of your spirit. I recognize that this is a very sensitive topic that we have waded into. And God, if I have uh, said anything that's uh, not completely accurate and, uh, and in keeping with what you have revealed in your word, I pray that by your spirit you would overrule. And Lord, I want to pray especially for those who sense because of issues with their body that creation is fallen. I pray for those right now who are groaning. And Lord, I pray that when we groan, that you would help us to trust Jesus more than we trust our feelings. That you would strengthen us so that we would be able to see the goodness of your blueprint and in faith trust that you don't withhold good things from those you love. And that the way to peace and the way to fulfillment and the way to, to wholeness is through you. I thank you that you came, that we might have life and have it to the full. That it's the evil one who's the thief who comes to steal and to rob and to take away joy. And Lord, I thank you that you would give us this, this great hope of not only eternity with you, but also the redemption of our bodies. And if you're here and you don't have that hope, I want to invite you to just to say a prayer like this. You can say, God, I recognize that you are my creator and that I have been attempting to cast off your rule and your authority. I've been trying to live independent from you and I acknowledge my sin for what it is. And I thank you for sending your son Jesus to pay the penalty for that sin, to live the perfect life I could never live and to bear the penalty I deserve to bear so that I can be restored and reconciled to you, so that I can have his perfect righteousness credited to me, so I can stand before you justified, made right, and no longer face any condemnation. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I thank you now for sending your spirit to help me live for you all of my days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.